0: Welcome back to Well, That's Interesting, the little bit of true crime edition. Today is episode 151, 16 years chasing a serial killer that didn't exist, and the earliest evidence of possible hominin cannibalism, my friends. (laughs) As you can tell by the title of today's show, we will be knee deep in mystery, chest deep in drama and eyeballs deep in murder, you're going to want to brace yourself for the first half of this episode, where we're going to talk about a woman who led authorities in three separate countries on a maddening chase to solve over 40, that's 40 separate crimes, each more horrific than the last. She was dubbed the woman without a face, as all she left behind were microscopic strands of DNA, and detectives were left scratching their heads for 16 years, until, after a fateful break landed in their laps, what could have been one of Germany's worst serial killers turned out to be... Ooh, no, no, I'm not going to give it away in the intro. It's just, it's just too damn good. And face palming, to reveal you will not believe who, air quotes, the culprit really was. It's just, I am just still... Enraged. Okay, then after the break, a very small bone with very small cuts may be evidence of a disturbing meal. Well, to us, it's disturbing, but for the individual who probably ate the other individual, it was survival, it was business, not personal. Back 1.45 million years ago, you really didn't have that many options. Um, We're gonna take a gander at what might be the earliest cannibalistic feast on record so far and uh, you may be asking who ate who exactly and uh, well we're gonna try and find out in the meantime I'm Jill Chacha and if this is your first time listening god damn welcome to the flock my completely innocent business goose I know you wouldn't hurt a fly but we're gonna have to talk about someone who seemingly had no problem being evil incarnate let's begin with the first crime And to do so, we need to charge up the old time machine and dial it way the fuck back to a frenzy of a year, 1993. My friends, if you are too young to remember, it was at this time Beanie Babies went on sale and federal agents raided a religious cult in Waco, Texas. And though it sounds like these two things could be related, they're not. (laughs) These were just some of the events which occurred in yet another crazy time in recent history. 1993 was also known for kicking off one of the strangest manhunts. So join me, will you, on May 23rd of this year in the picture-perfect teeny tiny town of Idar-Oberstein, Germany. And for my fellow geographically challenged Americans, don't worry, I've got you. Uh, If you picture France, okay, point to it. And if you move your finger northeast, you've got Germany and there just a stone's throw from the border that they share is Eidar Oberstein. It's a combination of like European style architecture with mountainous geography that Germany and Switzerland are just known for. It's just grossly fucking perfect. Okay. And it only has a population of 40,000 people or so, so you're right to assume nothing much happens here most of the time. However, on this day, a neighbor had knocked on the door of Liselotte Schlenger and received no answer. In small-town fashion, this was seen as truly bizarre, and they ran off to police who entered Lisolette's home and discovered a violent scene that really sounds like it came straight out of murder, she wrote. "Liselotte Schlenger was found dead, strangled with a strand of wire taken from a bouquet of flowers in her room. Gunter Horn, at the time, the 44-year-old German prosecutor in charge of this case, told The Guardian, after sweeping the room for evidence, DNA was picked up on the rim of a brightly painted teacup also in the room. For real. It wasn't Lisalette's. It was as though the killer had taken the time to take a sip before disappearing into the countryside. And... Despite the dozens of potential witnesses interviewed, no one saw or heard anything, and the DNA could only confirm the possible suspect was female. That's all the authorities had to go on. So, alas, this case went cold and nearly forgotten until eight fucking years later. Join me now, will you, on March 21st, 2001. We have just taken a three and a half hour car ride south from Eider-Oberstein, to find ourselves in the equally stunning town of Freiburg, Germany. It was here on this day police stumbled into a very familiar scene. A 61-year-old antiques dealer was found dead in his kitchen, and he too had been strangled. DNA had been swabbed off a drawer, and lo and behold, it belonged to the woman who had some tea with her first victim. And as with this first case, there were no witnesses. There were no leads. Just this strand of DNA left behind. But unlike the first case, it seemed whoever this was had a huge, sudden burst of confidence. A crime spree for the ages was about to begin. Brace yourself. There seemed to be no pattern, no rhyme or reason or connection between the events. I'm just gonna tick off a few, one by one, to help paint the jackson pollock-esque picture that confused the fuck out of detectives detectives not only in germany but france and austria for the next 16 years what do you say i think we should get into it number one five months after the death of the elderly antique guy, a soiled needle was turned into police by a mother whose seven-year-old had accidentally stepped on it while being a seven year old in a playground in a town called Gerolstein? Gerolstein? Gerolstein. Anyway, it's not far from the border with Belgium, and you guessed it, her DNA appeared here. Number two, in October of 2001, just two weeks after the syringe was found, a caravan was busted into on the outskirts of Mainz, a city just a few miles northeast of Idar Oberstein, where our first case took place. Of all fucking things, this invisible woman supposedly had time to eat a snack, a cookie, whose unfinished bits were used by police to once again find this DNA. Number three, fast forward to January 1st, 2003, a break-in occurred at an office in Deitsbach, a city just northeast of Mainz, and yeah, her DNA was found here. Number four, in December of 2003, a car was stolen in Heilbronn, which is just southeast of all these fucking cities I just named. It was abandoned, found, and tested, and drum roll please, her DNA was found on the gas cap after filling up. Number five, please picture a late night robbery at a bar This took place back in 2005 in a town in the same general area as the others, a place called Karlsruhe, Germany, and I shit you not, her DNA was found on not one but two beer bottles and an empty fucking wine glass. This is all very reminiscent of the teacup. Number six, are you exhausted? Great, so are police at this point. And to add insult to injury, a year later, 2006, just across the border in Bissancon, France, which I think I fucking nailed. Get this, you won't believe what was found on a toy pistol. A toy pistol used in a robbery. That's right, my clever business goose, her DNA. And because you're so clever, my beloved business goose, I bet you're thinking at this point, hold the fuck up. Hold the fuck up. Was she doing all of this? Alone? I mean, were there any accomplices? I mean, it's been years, 1993 all the way to 2006? Well, I am so glad you asked, because the answer just made things even more frustrating. After the toy pistol situation, her DNA, quote, turned up in nearly a dozen break-ins at shops and offices and several car thefts in Austria. At some of the crime scenes, the genetic print of presumed accomplices was also found, though according to Gunter Horn, the German prosecutor, it was never the same ones. At least three men had been arrested from Slovakia, Serbia, and Moldova. But again, if they knew anything about the woman without a face, they weren't talking. End quote from Ned Temko of The Guardian. My friends, These men did not know each other, and they were adamant they had never met the so-called woman without a face. Now, were they just too terrified of her to admit it, or were they just being honest, despite the physical evidence? Now, before authorities could even answer these questions, the phantom struck again. And what I'm about to describe is one of the most bizarre cases yet. In the uncomfortably named City of Worms, a man shot his brother with a 765-caliber pistol, and somehow, somehow the woman's DNA was on one of the bullets. You heard me. But don't worry, it gets stranger, because, quote, there were still no witnesses and no other evidence, said Gunter Horn to The Guardian back in 2008. Continuing his, quote, All of us on the various teams talk to each other two or three times a month. We meet, we email, but mostly we wait for another report saying that the same DNA has turned up, end quote. Well, that is so depressing. (laughs) That is so depressing. And yes, my friends, her DNA did pop up a few months before that interview in an assault and robbery. Uh, in a little town called Sarsholbach, where Germany shares the border with (laughs) Luxembourg, In the far south, this is all very serious, a woman running a fishing lodge was struck over the head and 300 euros had gone missing. Thankfully, thankfully, the woman survived. But that was petty compared to this next case. This was the one that made headlines around Europe for its brazenness and officially gained her that badass nickname. Here it is, quote, In April 2007, Michelle Kaiswetter, a 22-year-old policewoman from an elite drug squad, was taking a lunch break with a colleague in their BMW patrol car in Heilbronn. Uh, side note, if that sounds familiar, that's because we brought it up back when we were ticking off cases. It came up as number four when a car was stolen and DNA was found on that gas cap. So... We must ask, was the killer back in town? Let's find out. Continuing the quote, it's believed two people climbed into the back seat and shot the officers from behind, killing the woman and seriously injuring her 25-year-old partner. The assailants struck so quickly, their victims had had not even drawn their weapons, end quote. My friends, not only did the cops not see it coming, there were no witnesses either. Just the usual calling card, the phantom's DNA found on the dashboard and back seat. Two places. Of course, of course, with dead cops, finally comes outrage. And with these two homicides, the largest criminal investigation in Germany's history began. I'll say that again. The largest criminal investigation in German history. And uh, they've got quite a history. A 300,000 euro reward was also put up for grabs but despite this and countless human hours and resources and god only knows how many interrogations the case went cold all cases linked to her dna went cold until until one of the most bewildering maddening face-palming moments in all of criminal history <laughs> that's my quote has to be <laughs> occurred in 2009, 16 years after the death of Lisolette Schlenger. My friends, sit the fuck down. Sit the fuck down and grab your phone because you're going to want to text your true crime bestie about this clusterfuckery. Okay, are you ready? Quote, police in France had discovered the burned body of a man believed to be an asylum seeker who went missing. During his application, the man had submitted fingerprints, which the police used to try and confirm his identity. Only, once again, they found the DNA of the phantom. End quote from James Felton of IFL Science. I can hear you screaming from here. I can hear you. How in the holy hell can this man share this woman's DNA? That's impossible. And you're absolutely right, my brilliant business goose. It is So the human sample was tested again, and lo and behold, the woman without a face was nowhere to be seen. I am so sorry about this, I really am. For you see, there was no serial killer, no soulless monster who loved tea, cookies, beer, and wine. The DNA was linked to a woman. It was the woman who tested all of these samples from 1993 up until 2009, it was all down to contamination. Quote, For 16 years, detectives had been tracking a serial killer and putting up massive financial rewards only to discover they had been tracing their own contaminated swabs. End quote from James Felton of IFL. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you feel that? Do you feel that rage? Okay, just let it settle. Let it wash over you. Exhale. This may be insane to you, but just imagine your Gunter Horn having dedicated your career, your life to finding this woman, and you do. Yeah, whatever day you had, it can't possibly be as bad as that one. After the break, a who-done-it, well over a million years old, grab your finest magnifying glass, we're gonna revisit a bone that once belonged to an ancient ancestor. Um, Turns out, it's got some very questionable marks that may be evidence of, you guessed it, cannibalism. And uh, you know how it is on this show, we gotta mention cannibalism at least once. So please, stay tuned. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hey everyone, Jill Chacha here from Well That's Interesting, and I am absolutely thrilled to tell you about Spotify for Podcasters. I use it, I love it, and it all started by downloading the free Spotify for Podcasters app, which has all the tools you need in one place to record and edit your masterpiece of a podcast. Spotify for podcasters also distributes your show to all major platforms. So when you hit publish, your episodes will stream not only on Spotify, but I'm talking about the Apples, the Googles, Stitcher, Pods, the other ones. <laughs> you get the idea. And you can monetize your podcast with no minimum listenership required. You could also set up monthly subscriptions and record ads just like this one. So, what are you waiting for? Download Spotify for Podcasters today and start changing the world. Oh, and please stay interesting. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us, all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots, shots, shots. That's fine. Now streaming. Shots just released from jail where can i get a drink around here back on vacation this place is nice it's drug lord nice i'm sorry drug lord nice with more baggage ever since he showed up he turned this relaxing vacation into all chaos who does that vacation friends 2 rated r now streaming only on hulu and we're back we are so back and my friends i hope you recharged your time machine because we need to head on over to the delightfully funky year of 1970 Now, we may have landed on the moon just a year prior, but when it comes to paleoanthropology, we're still taking baby steps. But, but the lack of technology and the epic gaps which make Swiss cheese of our human timeline, this has never deterred the incredibly talented, and unfortunately named, Mary Leakey. Yeah. Yes. Let's just acknowledge Mary Leakey. The name okay mary leakey is a paleoanthropologist who is about to make history herself so please join me and dr leakey in the extraordinarily tiny yet beautiful village of illaret kenya and for my fellow geographically challenged americans you may be wondering where that is so please don't worry i've got you here too please imagine africa thank you now please Trace your finger along the equator from left to right until you're just shy of the eastern coastline. This is Kenya. And in the very northwest corner, you'll see a gigantic lake. That's Lake Turkana, And on its shores is Iloret. And here, Dr. Leakey was just having the goddamn time of her life, uh, searching for bones, searching for the bones of our ancestors, those who lived before the rise of us homo sapiens. Hours after hours of digging, lo and behold, she struck paleoanthropology gold. She found what appeared to be part of a tibia belonging to a hominin. Now, what the fuck is a hominin? Well, don't worry. That's just a fancy-ass word grouping us modern humans, extinct human species, and all of our immediate ancestors together. And uh, the tibia, well, we've got two of those. Those are basically... Our shin bones. Now, this section of tibia, however, was definitely not from the body of anyone living recently. Please stop whatever it is you're doing. Grab your phone if it's not already stapled to your hand, and check out our social media stuffs. Uh, I'm gonna do the same. I'm gonna swipe through today's posts until I land on this picture of this tibia. Okay, here it is. Now damn I haven't brushed up on my forensic pathology in a while, but that that bone that there is an old bone um, just look at <laughs> just look at the coloring uh, the decay it just screams ancient, you know I think I nailed it okay also in this photo you'll notice a white box highlighting and enhancing some faint teeny just the faintest tiny vertical marks Now you'll have to forgive Dr. Leakey for not noticing these marks back in the funky 70s. Uh, I repeat, she did not notice them. And you know what? I think for sure they would have slipped past me as well because that they're just... It, I mean, just look at them. But put a pin in these marks. For now, Dr. Leakey did have a gut feeling this bone was thousands to hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of years old, and that's about it. She would have to file it away for safekeeping until one day when the right person and the right technology could combine to analyze this bone properly. And that motherfucking day came, my friends. Please climb back into your time machine and let's fast forward to the 2020s. Enter Brianna Pobiner. Yes, this is, this is just great. Brianna Pobiner a paleoanthropologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, uh, she had a gut feeling of her own. She dusted off not one, not six, not 82, but 199 post AKA everything below the skull, hominin fossils over at the National Museums of Kenya and Nairobi Museum. One by one, she picked over these bones which were squirreled away over the years those including the bones discovered by our favorite Dr. Leakey. Unfortunately, nothing stood out among this pile until our favorite Pobiner <laughs> reached bone number 28. You guessed it, the tibia. Quote I saw this really beautifully preserved patch of bone, Brianna told Gizmodo in a phone call. When I looked closer, I saw these marks, and I thought, I know exactly. What these are I've seen hundreds of animal fossils with these marks on them, but never on a hominin fossil end quote what a motherfucking day for Pobiner, my friends, <laughs> but before we get into the details, you need to see something first, so please, if you will head on back to today's post, either on Instagram, shitfuck Twitter or X or whatever whatever it's called by the time this episode airs uh. Well, that's interesting. Is also on threads. Anyway, to swipe through until you come to a photo depicting three animal bones. I'm going to give you a second, and I'm going to pull it up myself. Now, what you see, what you see here, is the <laughs> which are the mandible and uh, of an antelope, and part of a bone belonging to another mammal. And I gotta say, the marks. On these animal bones look a hell of a lot like the ones found on the hominin tibia. So please tell me in the comment section if you agree, but it's goddamn similar. And if you're wondering what these are exactly, the marks in this photo, well, my hungry business goose, they are cut marks. They are cut marks, quote, made with stone tools, a technology which ancient hominins honed over millions of years. The oldest known tools are just over three million years old, and earlier this year, cut animal bones found alongside the largest hominin tooth yet known broadened the geographic distribution and age of what's called the Oldowan Toolkit, a linchpin of hominin technology. Hominins use stone tools to make three kinds of butchery marks, each of which indicate the type of cutting the individual was trying to do. Skinning marks occur on ankle bones and other areas from which skin can be peeled. Disarticulation marks are are less precise and indicate that the carcass in question was just being cut up, perhaps for transport. But the marks Pobiner spotted were defleshing marks made across the bone, you guessed it, to remove flesh and other edible bits. End quote, from Isaac Schultz of Gizmodo. So, my not-so-hungry business goose, you heard me right. This bone, belonging to a hominin, suggests they were possibly diced up and possibly eaten by another tool-wielding hominin. Now, I know what you may be thinking, are you sure? Are you sure? (laughs) These are cut marks. And if so, who the fuck ate who? And when the fuck did this happen? These are all great questions. Let's just start with the easy question. This bone and this possible meal, possibly <laughs> this possible meal, this took place 1.45 million years ago. But the answer to who possibly whacked who is a little murkier. Um, <laughs> told Gizmodo, quote, we don't know who was eaten and we're not sure who did the eating. The thing that makes it complicated is that in this area of northern Kenya, there are three different species that we have fossil evidence for. We have Paranthropus boise, we have Homo erectus, and we have Homo habilis. So really, any of them could have been the stone tool wielding, sorry, so really any of them could have been the stone tool wielders who made these butchering marks. End quote. So... So was it Paranthropus Boise in the library with a candlestick, if you will? Well, we can't we can't say for sure. But we do have a pretty I mean, this is pretty great evidence that these are cut marks. Now to test this, Poebiner actually made tiny molds of the cuts and mailed those molds to her colleague, who, I swear to God, I don't know if their name is pronounced michael pant or michael panty because it ends in an e i god damn it this episode <laughs> i can't so i'm just gonna go with panty i'm gonna go with panty and panty by the way is a paleoanthropologist at colorado state university and poe Biner <laughs> made no mention of what these marks possibly were where they came from Panty was coming in cold as not to skew the data. So I'm assuming, no, I'm assuming this was not the first time Panty has gotten strange things in the mail because he was totally down with screening uh, these marks and comparing them to 898 other types of, quote, known bone surface modifications as described in Pobiner's paper. So... After all the comparing and contrasting was done, what did Panty discover? Drum roll, please. Thank you. Hold on to your butt meat, my friends, because this tibia had nine marks identified as cut marks and two identified as tooth marks. Yeah. So, first things first. One, this is strong evidence that cannibalism took place And not only that, it's the oldest evidence of cannibalism on record so far. And number two, whose fucking teeth were on this bone? Well, hold on to that ass cheek again, my friends. They may belong to a big cat um, of that era. So it could have been a lion, for example, or a saber tooth. Which means either this hominin was possibly killed by another and eaten, and at some point a big cat came by and nibbled on it, or a big cat made the kill, and a hominin scavenged the body. In any case, that's a really bad way to go. (laughs) It's really bad. And thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends about the Dr. Panty. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, Dr. Leakey. I lost track about the, the number of names in this episode. <laughs> Tell them about the cannibalism. Tell them about the wild goose chase uh, over 16 years that led to that face-palming moment. Oh, my God. It just... I, I'm still speechless. And please, stay interesting.